You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're concluding our study of the book of 1 Peter, we've called Road Trip. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. Well, I'm sure you've noticed that sometimes life just kind of keeps hitting you in the face. Sometimes it feels a bit like if you've ever been in the ocean where you have that moment where maybe you're out on the sandbar and wave after wave after wave just continues to hit you. And you have that moment where like, just give me a chance to regain my footing here because I'm not getting a break to recover. Maybe you've been there. We have phrases like that where we talk about it just keeps coming. Well, I was reading a story about this farmer who was up in Crosby, North Dakota, and it was harvest season. He had a thousand acres to harvest when all of a sudden his combine catches on fire. Now, if you know that his whole financial situation is dependent on getting this harvested, that he would be able to turn this into some level of financial gain for his family, he's got to deal with it and he's lost his piece of equipment. And all of a sudden in that, as he begins to try to put the fire out, he goes into cardiac arrest. And it's just like, it just keeps getting worse. The question is, what's going to happen? How will he get this done? And that's when the community came together. There were 60 local farmers who came together to help this family. They put 11 combines to work. They put 11 semi-trucks with trailers, several grain carts. Seven hours later, 50 thousand bushels of produce had been harvested. And when one of the people was asked, how did this happen? Why do you do this? Why did you step into this? The comment was this, this outpouring of support is not surprising for those of us who live here. We have a long history of helping people in our community when they face tragedy or hardship. We strongly believe in faith, family, and the golden rule. I'm drawn to that all of a sudden, I think, I wonder if our community would do that. I mean, our community would do that. Who doesn't want to be a part of a community that when life hits you once again in the face, doesn't step in to say, you know what? Your battle is something we feel the weight of. We're going to step into this with you and we'll give seven hours and we're going to have everybody come together to help carry that burden for you. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a community like that? Well, this morning we are going to continue on in 1 Peter. Chapter 5, if you've got a copy of Scripture, please open it up. If you're using the Church Center app or our YouVersion app, you've got opportunities to get there as well. Because we've gone through this long journey, this road trip that we've been on, and we get to the end of this book, and we're going to cover the last 14 verses this morning. And as we get to the end, it's almost as though Peter is looking at us saying, okay, I've given you the instructions. I've given you the pathway. I've shown you what it looks like. How do you live on this road trip? Don't be surprised. It's going to be hard. Don't be surprised if you encounter suffering. Don't be surprised when the world around you doesn't applaud you because you live by a different standard. You live by different ways of thinking. Don't be surprised by that. Remember, this isn't home anyway. We're just passing through. And when we come to our passage today, I think Peter says, let me give you just a few guiding principles, ways for us to think about what it looks like on this road trip. So we're going to begin in 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1, as we see the first of these things that he says to us. 
So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I'll stop for a minute. There's certainly two sides to this equation. There are things here that are directed to those who would function as elders. That's there. But all these instructions that he's giving us are really for us on the road trip. And so I do think there is a side to this that he's telling us to pursue a shepherd, that we would pursue those people that God has raised up in this. And as Paul, excuse me, as Peter begins this, he says, I'm writing this. I recognize the call of an elder. I too am an elder. I know the weight of this office. I understand what this is called to be. He uses two titles here. Matter of fact, you may be familiar with them when I tell you what they are. The first one is this word elder. It stresses the maturity of the office as a shepherd of one who nurtures or feeds. If you have been a part of a different church background before, you may be familiar with this. This term elder that gets translated here comes from the word presbyteros. If you have a Presbyterian background, you may be familiar with that. But it stresses that there's this maturity that comes with the office. Peter actually grabs a word that the Jewish community would have been familiar with. That's one aspect of it. Someone who is tending the flock, that brings you in to shepherd, to nurture, to provide pasture, a place of safety, a place to be fed, a place to be cared for. That's the first of them. The second one is this word bishop. It gets translated here as an overseer. And this comes from the word episkopos. If you come from an Episcopalian background, you're probably familiar with that word. This stresses the duty. The first one talks about the maturity that comes in life and experience, that you know how to find pastor, how to be cared for, how to step into that. This one says there's a duty for this person that is to protect and to guard the flock. We put both of those words together in this role that is known as the elder, and we see this idea that their calling is to come together in such a way that you provide nurturing and pasture, but oversight and protection and guarding of the flock. We need to find those kind of people. What kind of people are they? Well, he's about to tell us, but let me take a step back. If you've been to Discovering Grace, you may know this. If you haven't, then maybe you want to go next week, which... Uh, Caleb was just talking about. We are an elder-led church. Depending on your background, you may have come from churches that were elder-led. You may have come from some that were congregationally led. So you had, uh, you had voting in church meetings. You may come from a background where you had a pastor-led church. We believe that the biblical model is an elder-led church. And so we have a group of eight men who come together to function as the elders in this church. And we have one of them that's always on sabbatical. There's two reasons for that. One is a practical reason. It gives a chance for rest. It gives a chance for these elders to get away from groupthink so that they can be refreshed in their thinking. The second is a more theological reason. It is a reminder that Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd of our church, and they function as under-shepherds. And it's an opportunity to be reminded that God is the one leading this church. He's using these eight men to do it, but that's part of what they're doing. 
And so the question for you and me is, but what if they are not the caliber of men that we would want? That could create a level of fear. And he tells us the kind of men that we need to be looking for. Did you catch it? Because he gives us three of them, and he states it first negatively, and then he turns around and gives us the positive statement, such as this, not under compulsion, but willingly. Is that these men are not to be here because they have to be, because we drafted them, not because there's any sort of pressure on them, is that this isn't an extra uh, letter for their Christian letter jacket. No, this is willingly. This is, they step forward. They sense the call of God on their life, and they say, you know what? This is what the Lord has called me to do. And so I'm stepping into that role willingly. That's the first of them. The second one was this. It's not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain. There's no financial reward for this role. Matter of fact, one of our, some of our elders have been on for more than 30 years. And there have been seasons in the life of our church where those meetings were every Monday night. There have been times where it's more than just once a week. There have been times where it's twice a month. But these men that lead the church that step forward into this, there's no financial gain for them. And you and I can look at them and the world might look at them and say, why in the world? I mean, certainly you get some level of power out of this, right? Our elders would say, no, no, it's a labor of love. It's a calling of, on our lives. It's what the Lord's called us to do. And so we step forward into this eagerly, not under compulsion. We don't have to, but to see the Lord use us and further us is what God wants us to do. And we, we're all in on it. So how do you lead? Not domineering over those in your charge, but by being examples. It's because they don't get to bring a gavel and a robe to, into the life of the church. No, they model this. They model what it looks like to be on this road trip through life. They model what it looks like in their workplace. They model what it looks like in the community. They model what it looks like in their home. They model it in everything that they do. You don't get to go out there and crack a whip as an elder. No, matter of fact, Jesus said, you want to know what leadership looks like? And he grabbed a towel and a basin of water and he got down and washed feet. That's what God calls our elders to do. So let's find these people. I think as we're on this road trip, the idea is that we would find these people that are doing this and we put ourselves under them to say, hey, show us how to do it. Show us what it looks like to walk on this path. I gotta tell you, if you got your bulletin this morning or it's in, uh, it's in the, the, um, the app, is you'll see our eight elders listed. If you do not know them, I really, really would encourage you to get to know these men. Underneath the listing where it has their names, you'll see a link. If you have not met them or haven't had a chance to rub shoulders with them, we'd encourage you to go to our website. They gave their testimonies this summer. They're broken down into individual videos. Get a chance to know these men. If we're going to submit to them, it would be easier if you knew who they were and could trust them. They are real people with real stories. They're not perfect, but they fit the requirements of what the Lord has said. Matter of fact, when it comes to selecting elders, we find ourselves in a position, how do you get the elders? Well, we find people who are already functioning as elders, and we just recognize it. And then all of a sudden, we get feedback from the church. What do you see of them? So we really would encourage you to do it. And I would recognize that if you look back at our copy of Scripture, you see a couple of things that are going on there. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an, un an unfading crown of glory. At the end of the day, 
these men who are serving as under shepherds will give an account before the Lord for the role that they led, how they led. So find these people. Because on this road trip, we're going to need people that are a little bit further along, that have a little bit more in, and maybe in their faith, that have experienced some of these things. And by the way, if you look at that word and say, chief shepherd, I feel like I've heard those words before. I hear the word shepherd a lot. This is why we, he's the chief shepherd. Our elders are the under shepherd. Make no mistake, there is a chief shepherd. But look at the words, how we see the word shepherd used as it relates to the Lord. John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the good shepherd. You know what the great shepherd does? The great shepherd, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing to his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be Glory forever and ever, amen. There's a good shepherd who lays down his life. There is a a great shepherd who's equipping and at work in us. And there's the chief shepherd that Peter just mentioned who will give you this unfading crown of glory, put them together, and let's understand who our Lord is. He is the one who laid down his life for you. He is the one who equips and develops you. And ultimately, on that day that lies ahead in our future, he's the one who will crown us with an unfading crown of glory. Now, when we talk about shepherds, he is the chief shepherd. We have under shepherds. Understand this, our under shepherds are to function as ones who lay down their lives for this flock. They are the ones that are committed to equipping and developing us as believers in this church. And you and I might say, but how do they do that? The first 30 minutes of every elders meeting is spent in prayer for our church body. We pray every Sunday morning together. They are the ones who have addressed the mission, the vision, and the values of our church and make sure that everything we do is in alignment with the mission and the visions and the values of who we are as a church. Why did God open our doors all those years ago? That's what we are still about today. It looks different but we are still the church God raised us up to be because there are a group of men that are leading us in that way. These men, these under shepherds, laying down their lives for this flock, equipping and developing this flock. Now, they, they won't give us an unfading crown of glory. That's only something that only the chief shepherd gets to do. But that's who we are as a church. As we go through this road trip of life that we're on, find opportunities to do that. Let's come back. Pursue a shepherd, pursue humility. Look with me, if you would, at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Pursue humility. Pursue an attitude of humility. First of all, place yourself under some shepherds. Place yourself under some shepherds. Nobody's going to make you do it. Choose that path. Choose that path for some people to come alongside you, to nurture you, to provide protection and guardianship, to provide feeding and pasture to help you. We all need that. We need a community that comes around us when the, co- the combine catches on fire and then you turn around and have cardiac arrest. We need a community. And then he turns around and says, 
We need to be humble with other people. That can be so hard, can it? And he talks about it like it's a shirt. When he comes in and he says, I want you to put on and clothe yourself with humility. Like you and I have the chance every morning to walk into our closet and like, okay, there's the arrogant shirt. There is the know-it-all shirt. There's the I don't need you shirt. There is the I need you and I choose to value you and honor you. And you and I, on a good day, know what shirt we're going to put on, right? But we walk in there and like, I don't know. I mean, I want to feel smart today. I want to feel powerful today. I want to, you know what, somebody hurt my feelings. I'm just going to be myself today. And he says, clothe yourselves with humility. That's so hard, isn't it? Because all of a sudden what we understand is, you know what? I'm not in control of my life. You're not in control of your life. I'm not in control when the combine's going to catch on fire. I'm not in control when I'm going to have cardiac arrest. I'm not powerful. So let's just be honest about that. And all of a sudden, when we come to that conclusion, guess what? There's really only one shirt to put on, and it's the humility shirt. The one that says, you know what? I need you because this life is too hard. I can't make it through this life on my own. I better connect with some other people. I need to value other people. You know what? You hurt me. You're on a journey just like I am. Guess what? Hurt people, hurt people. And so let's just walk through this life together, clothed in humility for whatever we're going to face. I love this quote. This is from a guy named Thomas Kelly. He writes this, but humility rests upon holy blindedness, like the blindness of him who looks steadily into the sun for wherever he turns his eyes on earth, there he sees only the sun. Think with me for a minute. If you've ever looked at the sun too long and you start seeing spots, it doesn't matter. You turn your head away from it and you're still seeing spots, right? We've been there. And he says, humility is like this holy blindedness because he finishes it by this. The humility of the God-blinded soul endures only so long as we look steadily at the sun. He capitalized it to show us that he's talking about Jesus Christ while still carrying the analogy of looking at the sun. You see, the more we stare into the sun, the more we're going to carry that image as we take our eyes and look at those around us. And all of a sudden, we're still seeing the spots that are Jesus. And it creates a humility because we're seeing every person's need for the Lord. We're seeing every person's uh, status as an image bearer of God. We need to put on this holy blindedness in how we go about our lives and looking at these things. You know, Jesus washes the feet. He models humility for us. This is the one that could do anything. Paul tells us in whom and through whom all things that were created were created in him and through him. He's the one who sustains everything. And if he can grab a towel and a basin of water that's the calling for us as well, to live out this humility. Because as we go, catch the last part of this section, is we need to cast all of our anxieties upon him. Cast all of our anxieties upon him. Why? Because he's for you. He's for you. Do you hear that? The sovereign God, creator of the universe, is for you. He's in your corner. And he's not saying, you know what, don't bother me with that. Don't bother, okay, so you had to do that. All right, big deal. My son went to the cross. You have a heart. He doesn't do that. His calling is bring all of your anxieties, all of them, all of them, even the small ones, 
all of them. Bring all of it. Why? Because he cares for you. If it's on your mind, it's on his heart. That's part of who he is. So the question for you and I is, what anxieties are you carrying today? What are the anxieties that you're looking for somebody to carry them? What is your combine fire? What is your cardiac arrest that is plaguing you and wearing you down? That it's time for you to say, I don't have anything. Let me cast this upon the Lord. That's the invitation for you and me. Some of you will know the name Jonathan Edwards. I really love part of who Jonathan Edwards and what he did because Part of what he did was he wrote, he was part of the Great Awakening, which was this revival in the 18th century. And God was doing great things in our country at that time. And he wrote about this religious affections. And the idea being this, what is it that draws your heart to God? What are those things that draw you into more of a relationship? Fanning the flame of that. Now, I want you to think with me about a fire. You've seen a bellow before probably. And if you have a smoldering coal that you want to get enlivened and bring back that raging fire, what you do is you put some air on it. And so you grab this bellow. And that's kind of the phraseology that Jonathan Edwards is doing. What is it that fans the flame of your affections for Christ? We don't use those terms very much. So let me change the terms. When your heart is overwhelmed with anxiety and you find yourself worn down and plagued by the pressures of this world, if the coal or the raging fire that was your faith begins to just be a smoldering coal, what is it that you put on that coal to enrage the fire? Some of you would say it's music. Some of you would say reading. Some of you would say a walk. Some of you would say the beach. Some of you would say the mountains. Some of you would say a time of prayer. Maybe some of you would say a car ride. Here's the question. It doesn't have to be the same as anybody else's. But if you can't understand or haven't thought through what is it that does this to your spiritual life, then I really, really would encourage you to think about it. Because if you're not weighed down by anxieties today, thank the Lord that you're not. But it's not going to be very long until you are. And when that coal begins to become just a smoldering coal, to get us through this road trip, we need that to be a bigger fire. And so we need to think through what those things are. I think that's part of what Peter wants to say as he tells us, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Life has a way of putting out the fire, doesn't it? We need to find whatever we can do to put air on it so that it can come back. So now, all of a sudden, that fire gets bigger, the anxieties go down. What is it that does that for you and for me? We're going to pursue a shepherd. We're going to pursue humility. And we've got to be vigilant. You know why? Look with me at verse 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings, the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? And he uses that word, be sober. Don't go through this life in some Pollyanna way that doesn't realize that there is an enemy out there that wants to take you out. That's the reality of this life. 
We have one. That's the reality of this road trip. And so as he says, you know what? Be sober-minded. Have your wits about you. Someone wants to take you out at every moment. Be watchful. Be watchful. Recognize it. See him. You know, when you and I come to a verse like this in John 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. If you've been around church very long, you, you may be familiar with that verse. And what I would say is, you know what? When I interact with people and they're telling me about what they're facing or they're battling or the thought, process, it, thought processes, and I say something like this, does that thought steal, kill, or destroy? Does it steal, kill, or destroy your hope, your peace, your joy, your patience, your relationships? Because if it's stealing, killing, and destroying, that's not of the Lord. That's something else. Something else is at play. And you and I may think, well, I mean, those are just the big sins, right? I mean, that's like the big 10 if we go back to Exodus, you know, the 10 commandments. Let me tell you, Satan can still kill and destroy in much smaller levels. That's who he is. That's what he goes after. I think C.S. Lewis captured this well when he writes in Screwtape Letters, if you're familiar with that, where it's an older demon trying to train a younger demon how to get Christians, what it looks like to still kill and destroy. When Lewis writes this, it doesn't matter how small the sins are provided that the cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Doesn't matter how big it is. It's just an attempt to move you away from the Lord. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. You and I are like, well, I'm not going to murder anybody. And all of a sudden, Lewis says, you know what? You don't even have to do murder. You can just use like a game of cards. Anybody else competitive? All of a sudden, you find yourself wanting to maybe cheat a little bit. See, we don't have to commit murder for us to move into the... Instead, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. It's the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. See, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And it could be murder. It could just be a game of cards. His goal is to still kill and destroy your hope, your peace, your joy, your patience, your relationship, and just drive a wedge in there a little bit at a time. It gets further and further. See, he's prowling around. Peter says, I want you to be watchful. Be watchful. And you and I, we're out there living as though we don't have this enemy who wants to take you and me out. So let me give you some ideas for you to be watchful. Ask yourself the questions as I go through several things. Do you see this? Can you identify how he attacks you? Because he's attacking. The question is, can you see it? Like this one, wearing you down with his constant pursuit. He's just always on your tail. He's always chasing you. And it leads into things. We've talked about halt before. Uh, when we fall into temptation, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. I'm just so tired. And I will begin to give in because he will not leave me alone. That's one of his, that's one of his schemes. Questioning the goodness and the plans of God. Questioning the goodness and the plans of God. That's what he did in the garden. He goes to Eve and he's like, is God really good? I mean, really good? I mean, he, there's one tree he won't even let you eat off of. How good can he be? Who does he think he is that he can create a tree and you don't have the right to go eat of it? And all of a sudden, Eve's like, you know, you're all right. 
I mean, he's, he's a pretty good God. He's not a great God. A great God would let me eat anything I want to eat. But he's a pretty good God. I'll give you that. I tell you what, there's a great quote in there uh, when God comes after they ate of the fruit and God comes walking through the garden and he asks him a question and Adam responds and God says, who told you that? You see, we've got to get in the habit of being able to discern truth. And when we have something that still kills and destroys, we need to think in terms of, is that the Lord or is that our enemy that wants to take me out? And then we start asking different questions. And then when we identify that, that phrase, that lie, who told us that, we need to recognize it. And then we need to replace it. And then we need to repent. And we need to move forward with that because we get sucked into this drama too often. How about this one? How, how about tempting you to sin beyond your self-control? He's been on my tail for a week. He's been on my tail for a month. He's been on my tail for a year. He's been on my tail for 10 years. He just... You know what? You don't know how strong temptation is until you resist it. And then all of a sudden, the longer you resist it, the more powerful it can become. That's one of the things he does. So let's see it for what it is. How about this? Creating conflict and division in our personal relationships. He would love to separate us because we're called to walk through this life together. So let's separate. Let's leave him alone because a lion may not attack a whole pack, but find one off by itself and that lion will go after that. So let's get you separated from everybody and let's go after that one that finds, him, finds himself or herself separated. You know, the pandemic, God did some great things in the pandemic. One of the hard things about this pandemic is we've been separated. Churches separated, our friend groups separated, family separated. We've just been separated. And then to add to it, all the issues that are there have created more conflict. Enemy does this stuff. It's part of what he does. We've got to fight against that. How about this? This one scares me, 2 Timothy 4.10, loving the world more than following Christ. I mean, I want to follow Jesus, but that fruit on the tree looks so good. The, light of the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. I want to feel smart. It looks good. My body craves it. I want it. Therefore, I'm just going to give in to it. And I fall in love with the shiny things of this world that cannot answer life's biggest questions, but they sure are shiny now. One of the enemy schemes. How about this one? Accusing you and shaming you before God. This is from Revelation. The accuser of the brethren that would look at you and say, oh, you're no different. You've never changed. Sure, you changed some behaviors. You maybe changed your vocabulary. But you know what? You're no different. You continue to fail. You continue to struggle. You're, you're never going to be a different person. You're a continual disappointment to God. Of the Lord or of Satan? I don't know. Does that still kill or destroy your hope, your joy, your peace? That's not our God. That's not who he is, and that's not what he does. That's the enemy that wants to take you and I out and raise the bar so that you and I say, I just can't do it anymore. And then we walk away. I don't know. There are more schemes out there, and schemes are personalized. But what I would ask you is this, what scheme is he using against you? He's got one. And either you can identify it, and then you can begin to battle it or you can live unaware of it and it can continue to wreak havoc in your life. See, when he tells us, be sober, be watchful at what's going on, we need to pay attention. I tell you, he's attacking all of us. I would say this, though. 
find ways to connect. We've got adult Bible fellowships. We've got community groups. Caleb talked about them earlier. We've got men's studies. We've got women's studies. If you've been separated from the pack, we've got a pack. We would love you to connect with us so that you don't have to walk through this by yourself. Find ways to connect. We would love to help you do that. I do want to call attention to something here, though, that is, I think, really significant. When we read about this in verse 8, be watchful, your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I want to call attention to two things. Number one is I think believers, we believers, fall into the traps of taking some of God's attributes and applying them to Satan, our enemy. Let me tell you, Satan is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. He is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. And he is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere simultaneously all over the globe. John said it this way, little children, you are from God and you've over, uh, and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We don't need to be afraid of our enemy. We need to trust in our God. And our God is greater than this enemy that we're facing. Know this. He's not everywhere all at once. Only God is. Let's not take the attributes that make God God and reduce him down to the level that we take his attributes and apply them to his enemy. Our enemy is no rival for our God. He's not. But while we walk through this earth, we see the impact of our enemy. We see it everywhere we turn. And it's part of the reality that we live within. Turn over with me, if you would. Keep a finger here. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 6, if you would. You know, we get to the end of Peter's book, and he ends it kind of the same way, along the same lines that Paul ends Ephesians. Because you and I walk through this world as though, you know, we're just happy, good lucky, right? We're just glad to be here as if there isn't a war going on. And you're kind of like, I don't see a war. And Paul would say, I know you don't see it, so let me tell you about it. And that's what he does in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, after everything I've said to you, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, not your might, but God's might, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. Put on the whole armor of God, all of it, don't leave out any pieces that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Put it all on every day. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we're like, well, I can't see the battle. And Paul's like, I know you don't get it. Just trust me. It's out there. So put on all the armor of God and trust in the one who's able to fight in those spiritual realms. That's our God. That's what he does. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Once again, the whole armor of God. Don't leave out any pieces of it that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand there for him, having fastened the belt of truth. Truth holds everything together. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, protecting our heart. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We can move about peacefully because of who God is and the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for you. Your eternal destiny is secure. So let's move in that level of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith 
which will extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. We need that shield. He's throwing them all the time. Pick up that shield. Take the helmet of salvation. Protect your mind. Protect your your head. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You realize that sword is the only offensive weapon we have? Everything else is defensive. And the question for you and I is, is our sword adequate for the battle that we're facing? Do we know this enough so that when those darts start coming, that we can respond with truth? Is your sword sufficient for the battle that we're facing? Which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. See, we're back to relationships. Part of putting on the armor of God is we get busy with the idea that we're not just praying for ourselves to stand firm. I'm praying for my brothers and sisters in the Christ. Hey, are you standing firm? Are you standing firm? Hey, do you have your belt of truth on? Is your helmet of salvation on? Where's your breastplate of righteousness? You've got that? Come on. Let's walk into this road trip with the feet that come from peace, the shoes of the gospel. Let's have peace as we walk out into this world. Don't leave out any peace. Of the armor. What peace would you leave out? I don't want the peace. I don't want the truth. I don't want my mind protected. I don't want my heart protected. I don't want to be able to put out the darts. Or I don't want to respond. See, all of it matters. Put on the whole armor. Paul says it twice just in this passage. Let's go back to where Peter picks this line up when he says, you know what? This is what it looks like when all of a sudden, we're, we're reading, resisting, firm in your faith. That sounds like Paul too, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We're all in this battle. We're all moving through this. And you know what? The quest is that the harvest happens, right? Even though that farmer had cardiac arrest, he lost his combine, the rest of the community said, you know what? We're all gonna get here together. Let's 60 of us come together with our semis, our tractors, our grain trailers. Let's all just do the work. But Peter and Paul are saying, you know, we need to pray for one another. We need to be connected to one another. This life is hard. That's why the author of Hebrews says, don't forsake the gathering together. This life is hard. And you know what? While we're on this road trip passing through this world and the world doesn't see things the way we do, let's walk with people who actually do see the world the way we do so we might encourage each other. All of a sudden, we begin to see how he's at work. Better be vigilant. There's an enemy out there. Do you see him? Do you see him? How are we going to encourage each other? Pursue grace. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, you're not going to say, a little while? It's been a week, a month, a year, a decade, five decades. This has been a struggle my entire life. And you and I can look up and say, you know what? Against the percentage of my life, it's not a little while. It's more than half of my life, whatever you would say. And God is looking at eternity. And so in a timeline of eternity that goes back infinitely and forward infinitely, we have a God who says, I know, but what I'm doing right now in this period of time in your life is I'm molding you and I'm shaping you and I'm conforming you to the image of my son because I'm doing a great work in you. And you may not always be able to see it, but I'm doing a great work in you and I'm preparing you to live with me in eternity. And so, yeah, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, whatever it is, in the scheme of eternity, is just a little bit of time. 
but I'm doing something great here. I'm preparing you for an eternity with me. And after you've suffered a little while, and it's going to be painful at times, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, it's him, God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. He's going to restore you. That word talks about like a fishing net that has a hole in it, and it was not able to be used to fish anymore because there's a hole in it. That word restore means that you mend it so that it can be used for its original purposes. You feel broken? God says, I'm the one who mends. I'm the one who fixes those things. I'm the one who confirms you. I will give you this solid footing. I will make you strong, and you will have a firm foundation. Isn't that what we want? Don't we all want that desire? I want to be restored. I know that I'm broken. I want to be established. I want to be able to be strong. I want to know that I can withstand the battles of this life. And Peter says, you know who does those four things? God. That's it. Nobody else can do it. And you and I are like, well, let me try to do this. Let me try to do that. It doesn't work. There's only one who can restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. And it is our good God. And we have to stay close to him on this road trip. We've got to keep looking into the sun. And we carry that holy blindedness with us everywhere we go. Those are significant things. He's telling us to pursue. Because this road trip is going to be hard. Look at where he ends. I love this. These final words of his, his closing thoughts. By Salvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who's at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, you and I can say, well, those are kind of personal remarks, but let me encourage you in this. See how personal that is? I think there's something to the reality that walking through suffering can drive wedges. It can ruin relationships. We get short temper. Other people get short temper. We quit showing grace to one another. We quit showing love to one another. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves separated and distant and isolated. And we find ourselves in all these situations. And Peter, after everything he comes through, says, hey, you know what? Sylvanus says hi. He's in the battle. He's still fighting. He's thinking about you. He's praying for you. He cares for you. And we have a dear sister in Christ over in Babylon. She's battling. She hasn't stopped either. She's suffering. You know her story. She's not walking away. She wants you to know how she's doing, and she's thinking about you. Because you know what? We're all making supplication. We're all praying for God to supply everything for everybody, all our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we're looking at each other like, hey, you're on the road trip? I'm on the road trip. How about we road trip together? Because this life is difficult. So does Mark and the Greek, one another with a kiss of love. So that's our application today. That's a joke. Just seeing if y'all are with me. It talks about the nature of deep relationships that are invested in one another, that care for one another, that can encourage one another, that are checking in on one another. I find it interesting that this world in the midst of our suffering can draw wet, drive wedges between us. 
You know what? We're all on the same road trip. We may think differently. We've got different gifts. We have different skills. But we're all on this road trip to get to the end. So you know what? Find encouragement in relationships. Find ways to connect with other people on this road trip. And then he says, and peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. As you walk, you know what you can do? Maintain your relationships. But you know where you're going to find peace? Only in the Lord. If you're here this morning and you don't know him, you're like, this world is unsettling. It is. This world is unsettling. And apart from the gospel, I don't know how we'd make it. But if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, what we would want you to hear is this. He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And he's done everything to make that possible. When he went to the cross to pay my penalty and your penalty of sin, which is death, he paid that. But he didn't have to pay for himself because he never sinned. He conquered death and he offers you and I life on the basis of what he did on the cross that day. And you and I can enter into that relationship. We find peace. You know what? This world is hard, but my eternal security is in him. I am safe. He's did work. He's going to do something in me and through me. And that opening illustration, I talked about a community coming along, a farmer. And maybe you've had the community come alongside you. I wonder if you've ever been the individual in that. Let me tell you about an individual. Some of you may know uh, the name Ernie Johnson. He is a sports broadcaster. And Ernie Johnson is a believer. He's been real, uh, he's been real open about his faith. Matter of fact, some people have labeled him the, 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 uh, the father of the year kind of thing because of who he is. He found out, he and his wife, they're believers, they found out that they had, there was a, a three-year-old uh, in Romania who had been dropped off and abandoned in a park at birth. This three-year-old wasn't speaking, wasn't walking, uh, had muscular dystrophy, and nobody wanted this child. And Ernie Johnson said, I, I think that that's our call. We want to find somebody else on that pathway, and we want to make room for them to come in. So adoption was one way they did it. They brought them this child in, Michael. Michael died this last year. And when they were talking with him about it, he keeps talking about his faith and the role that his faith had because that's always been what drives him. It really came to the forefront in the 2016 presidential election. In an, in an interview with him, he said this, I never know from one election to the next who's going to be in the Oval Office, but I always know who's on the throne. And I'm on this earth because God created me, and that's who I'm answering to. I am a Christian, and I follow a guy named Jesus. Oh, praise the Lord. Let me tell you, we shared this slide a couple of weeks ago about orthodoxy, which is right beliefs, and it talks about a vertical relationship with God. And we talked about orthopraxy, which is a right practice. It's, it's horizontal in the way that it touches See, Ernie Johnson looked up and said, you know what? I know that this is secure. The question for me is, what's he calling me to do on this level? I've got this right. But as I go on this road trip, what's my calling on this horizontal level? If God has us, and we think rightly about that, if God has us, then what do we have to fear here? Life's hard. God's in control. I don't like some of the situations I'm in. God's molding me and shaping me. I don't like how this looks. God says, I'm working all things together for your good. Because if we believe all these things, then we've got to start letting it impact the way we do these things. That's the calling. 
You realize as we walk through this road trip, let's be real clear. Author of Hebrews tells us, for here we have no lasting city. We seek a city that is to come. This place isn't home. We're just passing through. And so let's stay true to that because that suffering thing, it can drive a wedge in all of those things. It can rob us, still kill and destroy. It doesn't have to. We can submit ourselves to the Lord and what he has for us and let's be conformed to the image of the Son. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.